Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Thank you for joining me today. Well, you know, I wanted to go back, way back, to an episode I did in 2015. It was in June, and literally it was episode number two, and I titled it The 10 Rules for Successful Real Estate Investing. And I thought, what, if anything, has changed from back then to today, eight years later? So I decided to record an episode and go back and revisit those 10 rules for successful real estate investing in part as a refresher, because I think they're all very, very important and it's important to keep the fundamentals in mind. But second, I wanted to see if anything changed and what changed and maybe talk about that. So if these are truly principles-based rules, then nothing should have changed. The times might have changed, but the principles stay eternal. And so that's what I want to explore today, those 10 rules and see how they apply today and if anything has changed. So there's no need to go back to episode two, although you can go back and listen to it if you want. I'm gonna cover the important salient points, the nuggets that you need to know, and make sure that I touch on all the highlights today that I covered back then. And where did these 10 rules for successful real estate investing come from? Well, basically it just came from years of successes and failures through the acquisitions, the mistakes I made in those acquisitions, the good, the bad, and the ugly dealing with tenants, self-managing, property managers I was dealing with, the market ups and downs, the Great Recession of 2008. It was just all part of that. And these are the same rules that I still follow today that I shared back then, that I shared previous to that, and that I've been using all along as my real estate investing journey evolved and matured and as I gained more and more experience. So this just didn't happen in one day. It just kind of came to be over a, a course of time. So these are 10 rules. There's probably 15 or 20 in total if I really wanted to chart them all out. And maybe one day I'll record another episode and continue beyond the 10th rule and, and talk about the next five or 10 or even 15 if there are. So for today, let's go over these 10 rules and see how they compare. So the first one is titled simply educate yourself. Now it's number one for a very specific reason is, and that's this, it's because the greatest returns and the best investment you can make is in yourself and in your mind. This is why I always say that you should educate yourself because that knowledge will pay dividends and it'll make you a better, stronger individual and investor. When I do presentations, I often start my presentations with a slide that has the following sentence in it. Ignorance is blank. And I let the audience answer that. I don't give them the answer right away. I just want to see what people have to say. And more often than not, in fact, quite literally 99% of the time, they say ignorance is bliss. Well, there might be some truth in that from time to time, but generally speaking, in my opinion and in my book, ignorance is expensive. You see, this speaks to the saying that what you don't know won't hurt you. Well, that's absolutely wrong because ignorance comes with a tremendous price. And it's what, what's worse than that is that the ignorant never realize this. You, they're just kind of living day to day 
in their own fog or, or in the matrix or whatever you want to call it. But ignorance is expensive. Now, if you take nothing else from this episode today, remember this one sentence, the cost of ignorance is much greater than the price of education. That's worth repeating. The cost of ignorance is much greater than the price of education. That there is the probably the most important thing I might actually tell you on this episode. You see, ignorance prevents learning. It prevents growth. It prevents improvement. It's an expense and almost like a penalty to you. But education, on the other hand, it enhances your life. It enhances your understanding. Education is about learning. It's about knowledge and what you can do with that knowledge. You know, there's a saying, the more you learn, the more you earn. There's actually a lot of truth in that. And then there's another saying, it's the more you know, the more you grow. There's a lot of truth in that as well. So it's very important to educate yourself. It's almost like education and knowledge specifically is a new currency. It is like the new currency. You can use that knowledge to trade and exchange into better and more fruitful things in your life. I don't know exactly how to explain that, but think of knowledge as a currency. You see, without knowledge, you're essentially doomed, and I say that in air quotes, but you're essentially doomed to follow other people's advice without knowing if that advice is either good or bad. You can take what you know and elevate yourself from being just a good investor to becoming a great investor. And obviously that knowledge will help provide you with a passive stream of income and equity to grow your net worth and become a wealthy person in terms of cash flow and equity, not just for yourself, but from your family, as well as your generations to come. Think of it as generational wealth. But it all starts with the investment you make between your ears in your own mind. And that comes in the form of knowledge, book smarts, street smarts, uh, the, uh, the people you know, your network, in other words, the relationships, Hence the reason why I like to go to masterminds and belong to masterminds. So feed your brain, feed yourself with good knowledge that you can use. So that's my first rule is educate yourself. Now, has that changed at all since 2015? Not one bit. In fact, if anything, it's probably more important today than it was back then. Things are moving faster. We have more technology. We have AI, artificial intelligence coming onto the scene and things are just moving faster and just feels that we're living in slightly more complex times with just what's going on in the world, with you know our governments, with monetary policy, with fiscal policy, just so much is going on. I think you need to be able to not be ignorant and just have a sense of what is going on. You don't need to be an expert in everything, but it's important to just know as much as you can. Remember, you don't know what you don't know. And what you will find is that the more you learn, the more you'll realize how much you actually don't know. It's, it's almost a humbling thing to know that the more you educate yourself, the more you realize that you just don't know what is out there, but you can learn. All right, number two. This also hasn't really changed at all because it's just about what do you want to do and what do you want to achieve? So number two is set investment goals. So a goal is not a wish. Keep that in mind. A lot of people want to be rich or wish to be rich, but that doesn't mean they ever will. It's very important that you set clear and specific investment goals 
And that becomes your roadmap and ultimately your action plan to become financially independent. You can take a big, hairy, audacious goal and break it down into smaller and smaller pieces, ultimately bite-sized pieces that are actionable steps. And it doesn't have to be complicated, but once you do that, you can set a path, essentially like a to-do list, but a path forward to achieve those goals. And you have to remember that this has been proven time and time again, that statistically speaking, you are far more likely to achieve financial independence and whatever goals they are, even if they're not financial goals, but you are far more likely to achieve financial independence if you write down clear, specific, and detailed goals than not doing anything at all. And look, if you set a goal and it just seems too big to be true for you, that's okay. If you believe you can achieve it, even though it's big and audacious, that's okay. The thing is, is there, there's a saying, you can shoot for the stars and hit the moon and you'll still be successful. So it's okay setting big goals, but at least set some goals for yourself and try to break that down into an action plan. Now, your goals can include a number of things. It could be the number of properties you want to acquire in the given period of time, like a year or three years or five years. It could have to do with annual cash flows that your properties generate, the types of properties, the number of doors, the locations, such as the markets and the types of neighborhoods. Your goals could be whatever they are, but make them clear, specific, measurable, actionable, and time stamped. In other words, you have to have a deadline or a timeline to achieve those goals. And the better you do that, those things, the more your subconscious will kick into high gear and start to believe that that is possible. And the more you'll think about it consciously. Other than that, you know, the, the whole thing about setting investment goals, it really hasn't changed. I mean, this has just been a truism for decades and decades and decades. So and you hear a lot of motivational speakers and educators talk about investment goals. And so I think it's pretty clear to most everybody listening here what it is and why you should set goals. Okay, the third rule is a big one, and it's to never speculate, which means you're not a gambler. You're not in a casino. You always invest with a long-term perspective in mind. You don't chase after appreciation. Do you want appreciation? Of course, everybody wants appreciation. Will it happen? In the right market and certainly in the right neighborhoods, it will happen. It happens pretty much everywhere because real estate is a hard asset. It's made up of commodities and over time it will appreciate because of inflation. Commodities go up in price over time. And so it will just naturally happen with real estate. It's a get rich, slow asset class. And as long as you don't make you know, dumb or boneheaded mistakes, you will be fine. Believe it or not, real estate is very, very forgiving. Even if you are in a mediocre or moderate market and in just a very, very average neighborhood, over the long term, real estate takes care of itself. Just don't buy in war zones or poor neighborhoods or declining neighborhoods or declining markets for that matter. The neighborhood is more important than the market but just make sure you have a good market and a great neighborhood rather than flipping it around as a great market and a good neighborhood. That's my investment philosophy, but you should never speculate. It's important to invest with a long-term perspective. Don't chase after appreciation. You can focus on it, you can plan for it, and you can choose markets and areas within that market that are appreciating well and also tend to show strong appreciation potential going forward. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but don't invest just for the sake of and the hope of appreciation because that's not a good plan. Markets do change. They will always change. They ebb and flow. It just depends on different dynamics from mortgage rates to supply and demand. Supply and demand in a particular market, sub-market and neighborhood have a lot to do with price and price changes. And I think it's important to invest in prudent, well-located properties that generate positive cash flow at worst break even, but sometimes you can live through a short-term negative cash flow situation if you know that there's positive cash flow on the other end. That leads to my fourth rule, which is invest for cash flow. Now, when I say invest for cash flow, it doesn't mean you have to have a home run on your investment or it has to have a very high positive net cash flow. A little bit of cash flow in the beginning is okay if the rest of the deal makes sense, meaning that you either A, you know, got a good deal on the property and you have some equity going in, and or B, it's in a strong market showing strong signs of appreciation potential. And you just know that in the medium term and long term, the equity growth in that property is going to be very strong, which will almost always far surpass the cash flows you get from the property, especially in the early years. That equity growth will always surpass in, in the right markets and right neighborhoods, will always surpass your cash flows. So it's important to buy investment property with a positive cash flow. There is an exception to that rule where a negative cash flow or even a break even is okay. But again, you do want, generally speaking, positive cash flow. Why? Because I've always referred to as cash flow being the glue that keeps your investment together. You see, your tenant is paying you rent. That rent pays for the expenses and overhead on the property, maintenance and repairs, and the debt service. What's left over is your cash flow. And so the fact that they're paying you rent every month essentially means that they're paying for the operations and carry costs of that property, as well as the debt service, which means they're buying the property for you. Every month that that happens, you've got an investment that continues to survive and create wealth and ultimately more and more cash flow for you. So that's why I refer to cash flow as the glue. It just makes the, it holds the deal together and provides that wealth over time that you are investing in real estate for. Now, I guess another thing I can comment about cash flow thing is your equity in this property will grow over time through two things, the appreciation and the loan amortization. Both of those things lead to increased equity. The cash flow is there to cover operating expenses and debt service on the property, period, end of story. As time goes on and you build your portfolio, cash flows will increase. Ultimately, your net cash flow on each property will increase. And then if you take one of the strategies that we can talk to you about here when you speak with your investment counselor, one of the strategies is to systematically pay down the mortgages one property after another after another, and this accelerates as you go. And it's essentially a snowball effect. You pay off all your mortgages. This is not the only strategy. This is one of a couple or several different strategies you can take. But regardless of how you get to your retirement cash flow, if you will, or your passive income or your lifestyle cash flow, what you will do is you will increase your cash flows from each and every property over time, as well as the width of your portfolio, meaning you're acquiring more properties over time. That increases your overall cash flow. And that's what you will uh, use to uh, essentially fund your lifestyle. And if retirement's your end goal, well, it'll fund your retirement. But cash flow is the number four rule. 
that hasn't changed much at all since 2015. I will say as a side note, it is a little harder today, just given how much property values or property prices have increased over the last three or so years, especially since 2020, the beginning of COVID. But because of price appreciation being so rapid, it outstrips rent in most cases. And because of that, the cap rates and cash on cash returns have dropped and cash flows have dropped on a deal today that would have been a little bit more sexy or attractive, let's say seven years ago or when I first started recording this, this podcast. So keep that in mind. But, you know, it's not so much about being locked into one particular market or one particular neighborhood. You need to look for those deals, those opportunities, those investments in other locations to make up for what is, has been lost with the rapid price appreciation in the market over the last certainly three years, but even beyond three years. So that leads to my fifth rule, and that's being market agnostic. This is how you accomplish several things. One, find more deals and better deals than wherever you were looking previously. And two, helps in building diversification. So the U.S. is a very, very large country. It's made up of over 400 local real estate markets. And actually, you can clock that at about 505 metropolitan statistical areas. These numbers change a little bit from time to time. But essentially, you have, let's just call it 500 metropolitan areas that you can choose from. And then you've got sub-markets and sub-sub-markets. You've got smaller markets that I refer to as tertiary markets. So you have a big country with lots of locations where you can look at investment property and choose where you want to invest. So it's important to be market agnostic. Don't be married to any particular market. Each and every market is local. All real estate is local. And each market will move up and down completely independently of one another due to various local factors. A big one is the supply and demand dynamics in that market. Uh, that is also tied to the amount of inventory. It is tied to the amount of jobs and job creation in that market. It's tied to migration rates in and out of that market, the desirability, large corporations and employers moving in, weather, et cetera. So each market is independent. As they say, all real estate is local. And also recognize that there are times when it makes sense to invest in a particular market. And there are times when it doesn't make sense to invest in a particular market. So just, just because it made sense to invest in a particular market over the last several years, let's just say Salt Lake City or Phoenix, Arizona, doesn't necessarily mean that it's just as good today as it was five years ago. So you need to look beyond what you have been looking at as the years go by. But it's important to only invest in markets when it makes sense to do so, not because you live there or you bought property there before or your friends or uh, other investors that you know are investing in that particular market. That's not always a good reason to be investing there. It may be a good reason to take a look and do your due diligence, but not necessarily invest there. So yes, there is an element of timing and you don't want to buck the trend, but realize that real estate is a slow moving asset class and trying to time the absolute top or bottom of any market is very, very difficult. But if you know the trend in a market um, and the fundamentals are strong, you can certainly invest in a market and ride that trend. And uh, again, this is something that we will help you to do and identify uh, with our team here of investment counselors, if that's something you're interested in. So that was number five. That hasn't changed. Be market agnostic. 
number six, rule six, take a top-down approach. So a lot of investors start by analyzing the property first with little or no regard of its location. This is typically a novice or newbie mistake or an unseasoned investor. They will always focus on finding that real estate property, that real estate deal, but they don't put a lot of emphasis or much emphasis or sometimes any emphasis on the, uh, the neighborhood, the area that it's in and the market. And this is a big mistake because if you don't consider the investment in light of the market and neighborhood that it's in, you could be basically investing in something that's going to be easy to acquire, hard to get rid of and bring you lots of headaches and problems. It could be physical problems with the property. It could be problems with the tenant base and the type of demographic that you have in that area. The best approach is always to first choose the market, the city, the town that you want to focus on based on the health of that market, that local market and the local economy. Again, we've talked about employment and unemployment, job growth, population growth, uh, desirability, and all that's true at the market level, but it's also very true down to the neighborhood level. But the most desirable neighborhoods, not necessarily the most expensive neighborhoods, but the most desirable neighborhoods always make a very, very good choice in positioning yourself with income producing rental property, basically building your portfolio in those markets and those neighborhoods. So once you've identified the market from there, you would narrow things down to the best neighborhoods within those markets. And that comes down to amenities, schools, crime rate, renter demand, and a big factor, which you can always talk to your property managers about or people who are experienced in that market, such as our property providers and our home builders here, is the desirability of that neighborhood. And then finally, you know, you're going to look for the best deals within the neighborhoods that you've identified that you want to be in. So that's what it means to take a top-down approach. I think of it like a funnel. You know, it's wide at the top. You have a lot of markets. You narrow down the markets to the ones you focus on. And then, then from there, the sub-markets and ultimately the neighborhoods within those markets. And that's how you take a top-down approach. Has that changed? Not at all. That That is pretty much a fundamental principle and just makes complete logical sense when it comes to investing. So number seven is slightly tied towards being market agnostic, but it's essentially diversify across markets. And what that means is that you don't put all your eggs in one basket or all your eggs in one market. You want to diversify in having properties in different quality, strong growing markets. So you focus on one market at a time and you accumulate, this is a rule of thumb, I call it three to five in three to five. And it just simply means that you acquire three to five properties in a particular market that you've done your research and due diligence on. And it's an area you want to be in because you know that there's stability and growth and maybe strong appreciation potential if that's your strategy, whatever it may be. But you've obviously spent the time and energy identifying one or more markets that you want to stay focused on. Now, what do you do? You invest in three to five income producing rental properties in that market. Once you've acquired those three to five properties and added them to your real estate portfolio, now you diversify into another market, a prudent market, geographically different than the previous one. Often that's going to be in a different state, not necessarily the same state. And, and then you do the same thing. You acquire, again, your three to five properties in that second market. And then you do that one more time, at least one more time. 
So now you're going to have three to five properties in three, maybe four or five, but three markets. And that's how you build your, your portfolio. Now, for some people, that's big enough. You know, the, the, the nine to 15 properties you have and getting those three to five across three markets is enough for, for many people. Other people have bigger goals. They want to acquire more property, and that is absolutely fine. So you just keep investing until you reach the portfolio size that you want. One of the underlying reasons for diversification within the same asset class, and in this case, it's real estate, is to have your assets spread across different economic centers. Now, yes, it's the same country, but if you diversify in different markets that are geographically different by state, you are building in a form of geographic diversification. And again, remember, every real estate market is local and each housing market moves independently from one another. So when you diversify across multiple state, states, it helps reduce that quote unquote risk should one of those markets or that those states decline for some reason. Now, I normally don't see this happen. It's it's not very common. Some, you know, some states have issues like what we saw during uh, the oil boom many, many, many years ago in North Dakota, where there was a huge boom and then a, a, a rapid decline. Uh, there was only one industry there at the time. Um, the same thing can be said for the car industry in Michigan, in the Detroit metro area, many, many decades ago. There were a lot of jobs. It was kind of like the hub and the epicenter of industry in the U.S. at one point in time in the early 1900s. And then, you know, there was a displacement and closures and jobs were lost and people had moved out. And uh, a lot of those jobs were sent to other states or offshore to other countries. I mean, this is just the the disruption that happens. But again, you know, this diversification is helpful. So number eight, by the way, diversifying across markets, that hasn't changed. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's still true today. Number eight is one that has potentially changed a little bit. At least my view on it has changed a little bit. The rule is to use professional property management. I usually refer to that as using professional full service property management, which is not necessarily an individual or, or a couple but it's a, a firm, a property management firm. So I've always said that you should never manage your own properties unless you run your own management company or you're really seasoned and you know what you're doing as a property manager. You understand the laws and everything else. That is generally true. And for a lot of people, that is true. You see, property management is, I've always said, a thankless job. It requires a solid understanding of tenant landlord laws, good marketing skills, strong people skills. So you know how to deal with tenants and tenant complaints, excuses when they come up and with other people, tradespeople uh, that need to do maintenance repairs or capital expenditures, uh, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it can be a tough job. It's not a full-time job unless you have a, a very, very large portfolio, but it can be a difficult, thankless job. Some people actually enjoy it. Some people are very good at it and enjoy the management side of it. Uh, and it's not just the, the money you can save in not having to pay a professional management firm, but it's just something that they know how to do and they like doing it. And they, they you know, they, they, they make a little bit more on their cash flow. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself this question, how valuable is your time? Your time is valuable and it should be spent on the things that are important to you, whether it's your career, building your business, spending time with your family, looking for more property, whatever the case is, it, you know, you got to decide where are you spending your time and how valuable is your time? If your property is a thousand dollars a month 
and you have 10% as a management fee, which is typically the maximum. You can get management fees anywhere from 7 to 8% on the low end, all the way up to 10%. And it's a negotiable thing. Also, the more properties you have, the more likely you're able to negotiate with a property manager with a lower fee. I personally don't believe in nickeling and diming your property manager. I, I want them to be happy and work hard, as hard as they can for me. But the point I'm trying to make right now is this. If you have a property, it rents for $1,000 a month and your management fee is the full 10%, which is $100 a month, you got to figure out how much time are you going to be spending on average per month over the course of a year, but on average per month managing that property. If you think it'll be more than an hour a month, is your time worth more than $100 an hour? If your time is worth more than $100 an hour, it's actually better and cheaper for you to pay the $100 to a property manager and you spend that hour or two of your time on more important tasks or things such as spending time with your family. This is the way I look at it. You have to value your time and decide where you're spending your time. Is it worth paying what you're paying or saving what you're saving in exchange for the time that you're investing in it? So I still believe quite strongly in using professional full service property management. But where this has changed a little bit over the years is this. Technology has continued to improve and there are many more web-based services for landlords today than there was eight years ago. There are many companies out there that provide all kinds of systems and tools online to help you manage your property rent your property, get contracts signed with your property, take care of maintenance and repairs on your property. What else? Collect rents from your tenants online. Basically, you can have everything done that a property management company can do for you done virtually from wherever you live. Now, granted, there are parts of this where real people are involved, but for the like maintenance and repairs, for example, but for the most part, you can manage all this through these websites and their dashboards or portals. So this is the one thing that has changed a little bit. I still believe in management, but there are so many more options and tools out there to allow landlords to self-manage more successfully and easier than there were years ago. Number nine, maintain control. So this is just more of a general thing. It's not necessarily specific to real estate, but I've always believed in being a direct investor, especially when it comes to real estate, meaning own and control your own properties. Now, when I say own, I mean that you own them in your, you know, your title holding entities for asset protection, not necessarily in your name personally. But when I say own and control, meaning that you are not necessarily partnered with a whole bunch of people that you don't know to be involved in a real estate investment. Now, the, the exception to that is this, a good quality syndicated deal with a reputable syndicator. If they have a great deal and you want to participate in that, great, you know, go for it. But just know who you're working with and who you're dealing with and the people involved and the property, et cetera. Just do your due diligence. There's nothing wrong with syndications, but I do love knowing that I own my portfolio of properties and I have control over them and I delegate the management role to a professional manager. So that's more or less all I have to say about maintaining control. I'm not big on real estate funds or partnerships, and I'm not big on 
paper-based investments, most paper-based investments. I'd rather own hard assets and income-producing real estate or ownership in a business rather than securities in something that is far removed from me. But I like the fact that you can always maintain control of your real estate investments. And I guess the last thing is that you just have to be cautious when you're leaving your invested capital in other corporations and fund managers because you just don't know how those funds are being managed what fees are being taken off at the beginning at the at the end and sometimes even in the middle from year to year but that's uh that's number nine maintaining control lastly number 10 of the 10 rules for successful real estate investing and this is a beautiful one and it's especially powerful when it comes to real estate and that is leverage your investment capital. There are still investors out there that invest with no leverage, meaning they believe they should buy real estate with all cash. Fortunately, I don't talk to a lot of those people, or at least we don't here. Um, but there are still a lot of people out there who invest in real estate with minimal leverage or no leverage at all. Real estate is the only investment where you can actually borrow other people's money to purchase and control 100% of that income producing real estate, which means that you retain all the benefits, everything on that real estate, even though you might leverage up to 80% of the purchase price of the property, meaning you only put 20% down. Well, what does that do? It leverages up your returns. This allows you to leverage your investment capital into more property than purchasing just one or a few all cash you could leverage your investment capital up to five times, which means for a fixed amount of capital, let's call it $100,000, you could leverage that into $500,000 worth of real estate, which means you own and control $500,000 of real estate for only $100,000 of your investment capital. And you have 100% of all the benefits from all of that real estate, the $500,000 worth of it. So the bottom line is leverage magnifies your overall rate of return and it accelerates your wealth creation. And keep this in mind, it goes back to rule number four, invest for cash flow. As long as you have positive cash flow overall in your portfolio and your tenants are paying off your mortgage for you, as you know, it would be pretty much foolish not to borrow as much as you possibly can to buy more income property, as much income property as you can. Again, as long as you're following these rules, you've got positive cash flow, just leverage your investment capital to acquire as many properties as you can. Has this changed since 2015? Not much at all. In fact, nothing has really changed. The principle is still the same and, and is sound. The only thing that has really changed in the industry are the mortgage rates that go up and down. You know, they they are constantly changing. And so you will find times where they go up and sometimes you have to just change your investment strategy a little bit and look at other markets. And you're really not changing your strategy per se. You're just changing the location of where you're looking for income producing real estate. And so you just have to adapt with the mortgage rates changing in order to make the numbers work by looking in different markets, different areas, different neighborhoods. But leverage has never changed. It's it's just a very, very powerful concept. And real estate is probably the best place to leverage your investment capital because it's a hard asset. It fulfills a need. It's called housing. People need a place to live. And it's a tried and true, historically proven asset class.
So that is it for my review of the 10 rules for successful real estate investing. I've chosen to revisit these and um, I've added a you know, few extra comments and thoughts along the way here today. But I hope you enjoyed this. You know, this is a sticky post on our website. If you go to the blog on noradarealestate.com, this particular blog post is always at the top. It's the number one post always. We never remove it because I think it's so important to, to know and follow. But that is it for today. I appreciate you spending time. If you have a question about real estate investing or finance, definitely let me know at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. If you haven't subscribed, remember to do so. It takes three seconds to do it. Share this show with your friends and family and other like-minded individuals. And that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I will see you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.